With me today is a very special guest who has studied, served, and lived in the Middle East and has been in the driver's seat one too many times. Ambassador Daniel Benjamin Shapiro was the U.S. Ambassador to Israel from 2011 to 2017. He was nominated to that post by President Obama and was sworn in by Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. Ambassador Shapiro has deep experience in foreign policy, especially in our neck of the woods. He spent his sophomore year of high school in Israel and upon completion of his high school degree went on to obtain a bachelor's degree in Near East and Judaic Studies at Brandeis University, only a stone throw away from my alma mater, Bentley University, up in Waltham, Massachusetts, and then earned a master's degree in Middle East politics from Harvard University. Ambassador Shapiro worked as a professional staff member on the House Foreign Affairs Committee and also in the U.S. Senate, before serving as a senior staff member on the White House's National Security Council. And most recently, President Joseph Biden appointed him a special liaison to Israel on Iran. Today, he is a distinguished fellow at the Atlantic Council's Middle East programs. Hi, Dan, and welcome to Bahrain Banter. Thank you for being here with us, and I guess we'll get straight to it. Now, throughout your entire life, long before your respectable tenure in government ever began, a love of culture, history, the Jewish people, Israel, was very apparent. With such a long devotion to the welfare of the U.S.-Israel relations, but more specifically the Jewish people, I'm especially interested in your thoughts on how the Abraham Accords impacted peace in the Middle East. Well, first of all, thanks for the opportunity to speak with you. That's a great question to start with because most of those years as a person in, interested in the Middle East, interested in Israel, interested in the U.S.-Israel relationship, interested in the search for peace between Israel and its neighbors, took place in a certain context, a context of, of conflict that came and went. Of course, there were two peace agreements between Egypt and Israel and Jordan and Israel. But for so many of those years, even decades, the shape of the region and the possibilities that the region offered seemed kind of static. Uh, even frozen. So what the Abraham Accords have done is really dramatically reshape not just the current reality uh, of the region, but the possibilities ahead. What has happened in my observation with the relationship started in 2020 between the United Arab Emirates and Bahrain and Israel, and then a little later Morocco and Israel, and of course Sudan uh, announced its normalization as well, though it hasn't gone quite as far, is really showing a generation of Israelis and Arabs in those countries and beyond those countries the possibility of something very different, a very different future, a very different framework of relations. So for Israelis who, even with the peace treaties with Egypt and Jordan, felt a certain degree of isolation uh, in the region, and those peace agreements, as important as they were, and they're very important, produced what were often described as the cold peace model, a peace between uh, governments and maybe security organs, but very little people-to-people -people engagement, very little opportunity for Israelis and Egyptians, Israeli and Jordanians to get to know each other, to do business together, to, 
to have those cross-cultural connections. The relationships that Bahrain and the UAE and Morocco seem very intent on building with Israel are showing Israeli something very different, that they have a place in the region, that they are seen as a natural part of the region, and that there is indeed something natural about uh, relations between Israelis and Arabs, Jews and Muslims, who really do have their same uh, roots in the region and have worked and lived and studied and prayed alongside each other for centuries. And returning to that model of integration and possibility for much deeper people-to-people and cultural connection is something really dramatic. So, of course, Israelis are feeling that change in the sense of isolation they want felt. But young Arabs, I think, in Bahrain and UAE and in Morocco are also, and beyond, I would say, also in Egypt and Jordan and in some other places, are also seeing something uh, new. And you hear this in the discourse, I think, among many uh, in the younger generation in the Arab world, that there's no reason in an era of modern technology, in an era of all sorts of previously high barriers breaking down for connections between people, whether it's cultural, whether it's people to people, whether it's commercial, uh, whether it's cultural, that there's something natural and really quite welcome about the opportunity for them to engage their Israeli counterparts. So this, for me, is, is really dramatic and holds the potential. Of course, nothing's guaranteed, and a lot of work lies ahead. We'll talk about it, I'm sure. But it holds the potential for a region that really looks nothing like the one I've devoted myself to over uh, so many of the, the last few decades. The region, indeed, is uh, changing dramatically, uh, like you said, Ambassador Ren. Uh, it's it's really nice to see that there has been a lot of momentum so far throughout the year and a half. I think Bahrain in June hosted the first Negev Foreign Forum Steering Committee meeting. And at that meeting, the kingdom was designated to co-chair two of the six working groups as they were established, clean energy, education and healthcare, food security, all of these issues are detrimental to the landscape of the region and more integration and uh, more opportunity definitely paved the way for more integration. So uh, I think that um, the question here is, with so many key regional nations involved and focused on so many issues, how is this particular committee going to improve the situation as a whole? I'm glad you raised it, uh, Ambassador. The, the meeting you're referring to at the end of June, hosted by the Kingdom of Bahrain, uh, now called the, called the NEGA Forum, essentially the steering committee for the six working groups that were announced three months earlier at the NEGA Summit. And we should roll the clock back just a few months and talk about that for just a second. Of course, the NEGA Summit was quite profound, really historic. Your foreign minister, foreign ministers of the UAE and Morocco and Egypt all joined Secretary of State Blinken at the invitation of then Foreign Minister Lapid uh, to come to Israel. And we had never seen that gathering of Israeli and Arab and, of course, American uh, ministers in a setting like that or in Israel. And it was really profound. Uh, The images that it produced were quite moving and paradigm-breaking. At the same time, and you know this uh, better than I do, uh, that summit was not the product of six months of intensive negotiations over agendas or staff work or the the kind of thing that often precedes this type of gathering. It was the product of what is, I think, the phenomenon uh, maybe practiced most in the Middle East, which is WhatsApp diplomacy. (laughs) And on just a few days' notice, a lot of messages exchanged between these ministers, and suddenly they were all sitting together. 
So there was a need after the summit and the announcement of the working groups that they agreed on to sort of reverse engineer the content and the output and the hopefully very practical results that people will feel as a result of that gathering. That was laid out at the meeting in Bahrain for the Negev Forum and those six working groups. And I think what they touch on, you mentioned several of them, health, energy, water security, other forms of security, uh, education, and tourism is the other one. I think what those touch on is the opportunities and indeed the necessity to demonstrate to the citizens of the countries that have already invested in normalized relations, that the citizens themselves will really feel the benefits, that this is a different model. It's not just going to be government to government. It's not just going to be security cooperation, as important as that is. It is also going to be something that your average Bahraini citizen, your average Emirati, Moroccan, Israeli, Egyptian, and we hope eventually Jordanian and other citizens will feel new opportunities to do commerce and and improve their own livelihood, new opportunities to have access to technology that uh, resolves or at least ameliorates the food security crisis the whole region is dealing with in light of the Ukraine uh, war, the water security crisis we all face in light of the the change of climate, Uh, new opportunities to improve health outcomes and realities for people who may not have access to certain kinds of care. And of course, tourism, the ultimate pathway in education, the ultimate pathways to really build uh, relationships between individuals and improve their own standing livelihoods, uh, but also build connections. To me, that's the promise that was unveiled at that meeting in Bahrain. Now, of course, the work still lies ahead to get each of those working groups, the ones Bahrain co-chairs and the others, to really produce the most practical uh, results in the months and years ahead. We at the Atlantic Council are engaged as strong uh, partners and supporters of the governments in that effort. We have our N7 initiative. You're very familiar with it. And it is our opportunity to convene experts, some government, but also non-government experts in each of those same domains to really vet and refine and prepare well-considered proposals and projects for real impact that we can then surface to the government level for implementation. So we we're very excited about what that meeting upheld uh, or, or portended. Uh, we're in close dialogue with the State Department and, and with your government and others about our contribution to that next phase. I really think this is the key moment and the key mechanism to demonstrate to the citizens of the region that they will benefit from these very dramatic changes. Dan, you talked about momentum post-signing and uh, how important it is. Uh, Staying on the topic of momentum, you know, I've been on multiple panel discussions in the past year and a half talking about the impacts of the Abraham Accords on the people, on the region. But it seems like on every single panel, the question of who's next comes up. (laughs) And you know what? I'm not going to ask you that question. I'll try to rephrase it. We have... A number of countries that are already in the Accords and it's moving. We have the anticipation of additional countries joining. How important are these two? Are they mutually exclusive? Should we focus on one more than the other? How are governments like the United States government dealing with the situation of the Accords? Well, I think there are two really fundamental tasks. You're right about the concept of momentum. It's like any new enterprise. It must grow, it must expand, it must show forward momentum. There's no such thing as achieving a a certain degree of progress and then just standing still. Stagnation actually is regression. So there must always be new elements to show, again, the peoples of the region that this new paradigm is delivering meaningful change and positive change in their lives. 
So there's two aspects to that. One is to deepen the cords and the relationships that have been established. Actually, there's a great deal happening on the bilateral front between Israel and all of its new partners. Israel and Bahrain have a uh, security agreement, uh, and there's regular travel of ministers and, and other leaders of, between the two countries. Israel and the United Arab Emirates signed a free trade agreement. Similarly, we see a lot of communication and, and visits. Israel and Morocco have a defense agreement as well. There's direct flights, of course, and some travel and tourism going on, some degree of increased commerce. A lot of things are happening on the bilateral level, uh, and more needs to be done, of course, but the need for additional significant progress is on the multilateral level. Uh, that's where the negative forum uh, really comes into play. It's very difficult to build a multilateral regional architecture among countries whose bureaucracies, whose experts uh, really have not engaged one another for a long time, if ever. They must get to know each other. They must break down certain suspicions. They must break down certain misconceptions. Of course, there's reforms of education and things in all countries that uh, will contribute to that. But really, it's getting all of those experts in their respective domains around one table, thinking about how do we approach problems as a region? How do we build not just individual bilateral relationships, as important as those are, but a coalition of countries that act together internally to deal with problems and opportunities within the region, and then externally engaging the outside world, whether it's the United States or Europe or China or Russia, as a region with a common identity and a lot of common interests. To some degree, you see that multilateral architecture taking shape in the security dimension. That's, of course, because of CENTCOM, including, of course, the, uh, the Fifth Fleet based in your country which enables Israeli and, and Arab countries from many countries, even that haven't fully normalized, to sort of work together on exercises, training, exchanges, and the like. But building that same multilateral architecture in the civilian sphere takes a lot of work and will take time and need to overcome some of those, those barriers I mentioned. So that's the deepening part. The uh, expanding part, of course, is new countries. And you were nice enough not to put me on the spot about who's next. But these two are linked in a way. As the multilateral architecture demonstrates real benefits for those who are participating in it, it's going to be a club other countries are going to want to join. And so we know already that there are countries, we can name some, I'm not spilling any big secrets here, but there have been discussions about Oman, about Mauritania, about the Comoros Islands, about Qatar, about Kuwait, as possibly among the next group of countries. I think not all of them are ready. Uh, some may dip their toe in the water by attending you know, as observers or sending experts maybe to a think tank conference where they'll meet people from these other countries without full participation. We all know, everybody knows, that if Saudi Arabia ultimately normalizes its relationship with Israel, that will be a dramatic, highly influential, not just in the Arab world, but throughout the Muslim world. And there was an important step taken in that direction recently with the approval of overflights of civilian aircraft to and from Israel over Saudi airspace. But I don't think that's happening tomorrow. And, and you know, this is a process that uh, it's hard to judge uh, exactly what, how it will unfold. I also think there are countries outside the region, Muslim countries who have had some contact with Israel, but not normalized relations. Indonesia, Malaysia, Bangladesh, Niger, some other West African states, who certainly you can uh, assess uh, looking from the sort of outside the window about where's the right opportunity for them to engage. And where might they benefit from being a partner to this new, not just Israel, but to this new emerging coalition of countries? So I think we will see uh, both expansion and deepening. I think those two do reinforce each other. But I do think finding milestones where we see those things happening is really critically important because, as I said, 
if things don't move forward, they they stagnate. But stagnation is actually is actually regression. It's beautiful to see how things are developing. And up to now, we've been talking about so many different positive elements coming out of the Abraham Accords. But if we stop for one second and talk about some of the challenges in the region and how the Abraham Accords might have a direct influence on those challenges, uh, solving them, what would you say the top one or two challenges might be, whether it's to the Middle East security as a whole or to the Abraham Accords itself? Well, I think the biggest challenge, of course, that the region is facing in some ways is the same one the world is facing, and that's climate change and the related crises of food and, and water security. We'll get to other security challenges in a minute, but this is, of course, something that humanity is facing, but it's really quite acute in parts of the Arab world and the Middle East. Of course, the, the war between Russia and Ukraine has, has contributed disastrously to those crises. But there must be a very intensive focus on developing and then sharing and deploying across the region the necessary technologies to maximize water conservation and reuse and the ability to perform agriculture effectively in desert climates and obviously make the region less dependent on imports from outside that might be subject to to political instability. There are answers, not panacea answers, but there are ways of addressing those challenges. And of course, we all must do more to uh, prevent the pollution and industries that are warming the climate and, and reduce the use of fossil fuels and increase the use of renewable energies. That's something else that the technologies are, are available but must be broadly deployed. So I think that's, that's certainly one. Obviously, the other major threat that hovers over this region is uh, the behavior of the regime in Iran. Uh, Iran is uh, ruled by a regime that styles itself as a uh, regional hegemon that threatens openly uh, Israel with destruction, threatens other countries, including your country and others of your neighbors, either directly or through proxies, through missiles, through unmanned aerial systems, through attempts to dominate uh, governments in the region from Yemen to Iraq to Syria to Lebanon, to stir uh, dissent within the populations of those countries. This is a challenge that all of these countries that are partners in the Abraham Accords are dealing with in some ways independently. But uh, the best uh, solution, of course, is to pool knowledge, to pool resources, to share intelligence, to link security architectures like air defenses that are integrated in ways that make them greater than the sum of their parts. We have no doubt that Iran will seek and has said this openly, in effect, to undermine the relationships that are being formed in this new coalition that the Abraham Accords represent. They will try to divide. They will try to punish, in some ways, those who undertake these new initiatives. And so it's critically important that the uh, leaders and the people of the Abraham Accords uh, nations and other nations who are normalizing relations sort of link arms and say, no, we are standing together as partners and we'll defend each other. doesn't always mean kinetic uh, military defense, but we will stand together against those threats. We will help each other address those threats. And of course, we'll work together with our key outside partners. Of course, the United States is a lead outside partner. Maybe we'll talk a bit more about it to address the common, the biggest common threat we face, which is Iran and its proxies and its ideology and the military technology that it's developing. Uh, Dan, you mentioned uh, countries coming together. And I recall the uh, historic visit of President Biden to Saudi Arabia, where a number of uh, leaders 
from the region came together to discuss common issues. Now, that was truly a historic visit. That was uh, the first visit for the president as a sitting president. How significant was the trip? What were some of the outcomes that grabbed your attention? What are you hearing in the think tank world? I think this was a very important trip uh, for President Biden and for the United States and for the relationships between the United States and its regional partners. Look, with the crushing crises that President Biden faced when he took office, including, of course, the COVID pandemic and the economic crisis, growing rivalries between the United States and China and competition with Russia, which later metastasized into the uh, unjustified Russian invasion of Ukraine, uh, the need to shore up alliances with NATO partners and Asia. It was never going to be the case that the Middle East was going to be the first item on his agenda every day. It doesn't mean he didn't pay attention to it, but he had a lot of other business he had to attend to very intensively in his first year, year and a half. The fact that he prioritized uh, making a, a really quite robust trip to the region at about the year and a half mark of his administration, I think is impressive and, and was really quite meaningful. And I detected a, a couple of very important threads in it. One was a real commitment to uh, the United States supporting this concept of regional integration. He started his visit in Israel. He spoke about how much he welcomed the Abraham Accords and, and the other relationships Israel is uh, forming with its partners. He sort of signified that by taking part in a quadrilateral uh, virtual summit with the leaders of Israel, the United Arab Emirates, and India, the so-called I2U2 partnership, which is important in its own right. But more than that was a kind of a signal and a symbol of U.S. support for the overall phenomenon of normalization, and then not just normalization within the Middle East, but linking that new coalition that is emerging to other U.S. partners in other key regions, India being a key Indo-Pacific partner and a key player in uh, U.S. Uh, strategy to manage our own competition with China. Linking those two together showed that he viewed regional integration as important to the United States for our broader global strategic interests. It means there's going to be a real investment in it. Now, then, of course, he followed that with the visit to Jeddah, Saudi Arabia, where he met with so many uh, leaders of the Arab world, including, of course, the King of Bahrain. He helped oversee the step forward in uh, Saudi relations with Israel with the overflights and the resolution of a, a key dispute about the sovereignty of islands uh, in the Red Sea. But also each of those meetings that he had with the individual heads of state and then in his engagement with them as a group, he really, I think, showed that he is prepared to reinforce the United States commitment as a key partner to the region. Now, obviously, that carries with it a lot of responsibility. The United States is, uh, of course, the, a key security partner, maybe the key external security partner of these uh, nations. CENTCOM has uh, a major presence in the region, tens of thousands of U.S. troops, dozens of uh, U.S. aircraft, ships, including those based in uh, Manama at the Fifth Fleet headquarters. Those aren't going anywhere, but it is also true, one has to say, that he was speaking against the background of a lot of questions that are raised in the region about the durability of American commitments, especially after the end of the war in Iraq, after the very unhappy withdrawal from Afghanistan. Many questions are raised in the region. Will the United States be there for its other partners? I think the answer is yes, and I think he was indicating very strongly yes. But again, by linking that yes to the strengthening of this regional coalition 
that is standing together and taking responsibility for its own security and for its own non-security opportunities to cooperate with the U.S. as the key partner, but not necessarily always the one at the tip of the spear. I think he is saying, here is the recipe for a sustainable American commitment to the Middle East. As I said, there have been questions raised through three very different administrations, Obama, Trump, and Biden, about U.S. durability as a partner. I think a partnership is durable. But uh, what I think he is saying is it becomes more durable when it is linked to a regional coalition that takes care of a lot of its own needs and draws on U.S. partnership, not only relying on U.S. leadership. So to me, it was a very meaningful trip. I was very happy he did it. I knew he would take some criticism for it. I think the White House knew that as well, uh, particularly because of the engagement with the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia. The disagreements and some of the ugly history that that reflects doesn't go away, but it does show that even uh, with those difficulties, there is a real opportunity for partnership, for sharing in both the opportunities and managing the the risks uh, that the region face together, and that investing in regional integration is the key thread that ties all of these together. Well, Ambassador, given the time difference between the two of us, you being in Tel Aviv and me being in Washington, D.C., I think we should call it there. But thank you very much for your especially in-tune perspectives. This has been a fascinating and very important conversation. I thank you again for being on this edition of Bahrain Banter, and I hope to see you in person sometime very soon. Ambassador, it's my pleasure, and I'm sure we'll see each other soon. Take care.